Samuel for a while now. Uh, just a little bit of background going into this passage of what's happened over the past few chapters is that David is king. Uh, the ark has been brought back into Israel. And what we hear is that God has given David rest from all of his enemies. Now, it, it can sometimes become a little confusing. Uh, this part of 2 Samuel doesn't play out chronologically. It plays out thematically. Uh, and so this is a time when they're discussing uh, David having peace and how he responds to God blessing him. Um, so David is living uh, in his kingdom. He is living in his house. He's a warrior, um, but there aren't wars for him to fight. And so last week, what we saw was David trying to figure out what is he supposed to do? And he goes to Nathan, the prophet. And he says, Nathan, I want to build a house for God. I have a house. God lives in a tent. That doesn't seem right. God should have a nicer house than me. I want to make a house for God. And Nathan at first says, absolutely, you should do that. That sounds good. Do what you want. Uh, but then God comes to Nathan in a dream and he says to him, he says, that's not what I want. He says, I don't want to do that. That's not how I build my house. Uh, and then he proclaims uh, basically over David through Nathan uh, that God is going to do something else. God is going to do something else with David's life. God is going to use David's house, his his lineage, to build God's house in a way that isn't going to be localized to one place, but is going to ultimately reign forever and reign over all the nations. And so this is a messianic proclamation. It's one of the most famous uh, ones in the Old Testament. It's one of the most quoted ones in the Old Testament where we get a lot of information about uh, about who the Messiah will be and who Jesus, what Jesus ultimately fulfilled. David went through a lot of that with y'all last week. So this week, we're going to look at David's response to God. God looks at David. David has an initial idea. God says, no, that's the wrong idea. What I want to do is something bigger. And we're going to look at David's response. A couple of uh, just historical or informational pieces for those of you who are interested uh, this is the second longest uh, speech that we have recorded from David from first and second Samuel. It's the second longest one. Uh, it is it is one word short of God's response. So David gives a response to God's response and David's response is one word short of God's response. Some people think that's symbolic of David acknowledging um, the great word to David. Uh, it's reinforced by a couple of things. One is uh, this use, you'll hear it, you'll hear repeated sovereign Lord as a title for God. That wasn't really an often used term in the Old Testament. It's actually used a lot by Abraham. And then David uses it again. Uh, and then in comparison to that, it's used seven times if I didn't say that, sorry. Uh, and in comparison to that, David refers to himself as your servant 10 times in the 10 verses. And so uh, it seems like David is setting up this relationship where he's amazed by what God is doing, but also more amazed by God and establishing uh, the relationship or not establishing, but more so confirming the relationship. So we're going to jump in at verse 18. Uh, and you can read along on the screen or in your Bible. It says, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, who am I sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. 
How great you are, sovereign Lord. There's no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who's like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promise so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant, David, will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. So if you're new this week or just the past few weeks, you're going to hear about a lot of Davids at Stonebridge. <laughs> Got David. We're doing First and Second Samuel. If you don't know, our lead pastor's name is David. He's David Eldridge. My name is also David. I'm David Scott. Uh, you can imagine the confusion and the hijinks that ensue as a result of that. I think my favorite question that I was asked one time, this is true, uh, was someone when they found out. <laughs> I'm not often speechless, my wife will tell you. We are not relation. Um, so, but, but something I don't think that I've shared very often, something you may not know uh, about me is that I'm actually named after the David in the Bible. Uh, so before I was born, my parents had, they were divided on what my name should be. My father wanted to name me John Wayne Scott. And if you don't know who John Wayne is, he was like a movie cowboy. And my father wanted to call me Duke because that was John Wayne's nickname. And so I just can't imagine Duke Scott standing on the stage today. Uh, and my mother, on the other side, wanted to name me after my father, whose name is Gerald Delano Scott. And I felt like my father thought one Gerald Delano Scott might have been all the world could handle. And so they were divided, right? And, and what happened was I was born about seven weeks early. Um, and there were complications, but, but one of the biggest complications is I was really small when I was born, and I fit in my dad's hand. He tells the story of I fit in the palm of his hand. And he said he felt like I was David to his Goliath. And so because I was small, my parents named me David. Uh, so the, the David of the Bible is always, I've, I've studied him um, as a Christian. And we do have like a fair amount in common. We are both small, like most heroes are. That's one thing. <laughs> we uh, <clears throat> we um, were both pretty passionate. That's one thing that I get told a lot is that I even seem pretty impassioned about things that I'm not that passionate about. Uh, we're both pretty headstrong. Uh, we both love music. I'm not probably as good a musician as the David of the Bible. But so there's a variety of things there uh, that I identify with David about. But then there are things that I do not identify at all with when it comes to David. And some of those things I'm pretty glad that I don't identify with, to be honest. We'll get into those in the coming weeks. But, uh, but one thing that I wish I had that David has is that being wrong and being wronged 
never seemed to slow David down, if you notice that about him. It's not that David's always right or always makes the best decision. And it's not even that he doesn't care about being wrong. He actually cares a lot when he's wrong. And you see repentance in his actions when he is wrong. Um, and, And when he's wrong, he cares about it, but he doesn't let it stop him from moving forward. He moves really quickly on from things. And I'm not like that at all. Uh, when, when I am wrong or when I am wronged, I, for example, uh, the first time I preached at Stonebridge, I had two criticisms that were given to me. The first was that my vernacular might be a little young compared to our average attendee. Um, what that means is I say things like man a lot. I've accidentally called my own boss dude a few times. Um, I say come on and write. You'll hear me say them. As we continue on, so that was the first thing is, do I need to adjust my language for communication, uh, which is, is pretty difficult for me. I don't, I think you get a certain amount of words and by the time you're in your thirties, you're just, that's what you get for the most part. But the other thing was that I move around a lot, that I walk around a lot, that I don't stay in one space when I speak. And I thought I can fix that. And so I focused in tight on not moving. And so the next time I got up, I said, I'm planting my legs. In the ground, and I'm not going anywhere because I don't want to distract people by walking around. Now, the problem with that is that I talk a lot with my hands. And so what happens when this part of your body moves and this part of your body stays still, you start looking like one of those animatronic things from the It's a Small World ride. And it's a lot of this ends up happening. So, But I haven't been able to correct it. I tried to walk a little at night and I can't. I've just trained myself so well. And that's the problem sometimes with fixating on what is wrong is that I can get of what I'm doing wrong. And most often when God says in the Bible and and I believe that when God speaks to us in our lives, when God says, no, you're wrong. It's not that he wants you to do less than what you're doing. It's what he wants to do far more than you could have imagined. And, 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 and that's David's response, right? It's, it's, that's God's response to David. God, God says, David, I know you want to build a house and a pretty house in, in one place, but I want to do so much more through you. And, and David knows God's character. And, and he's reminded by God's promise that that's the type of God he serves. And, and he starts out the passage and he's amazed about this big plan that God has, that David's big plan was too small for God. In verse 19, he says this. He says, and as if if this were not enough in your sight, basically he says, God, you've done everything for me. You've given my family the the kingdom. And he says, and as, as this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, God, that was too small for you. It wasn't even enough for you to just give me the kingdom. You've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You want to give me far more. You want the things that I do to extend beyond any boundary that I could imagine. And he says, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. Now, I love the NIV in general as a translation. It's readable. It's accessible. But in this particular passage, I don't love the way that it translates the word. He says, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. The actual literal translation, it translates as, and this decree, sovereign Lord, this decree 
that you want to speak about our future and you want to do more than we can imagine. This decree, Sovereign Lord, is the Torah of man. Now, I'm a Bible nerd, and so I think that sounds really cool. But let me unpack it for you for a minute. The Torah is what we, is what we call the first five books of the Old Testament. And it's called the Torah because it's the law of God. And so the word Torah meant law. And so what David is saying is he's saying, he's saying, God, the decree that what I want to do is not enough. The decree that what you want to do is extend my life beyond the boundaries to affect the future and the world. That decree is the law of humanity. That's not just for David. That decree is the way that God works in all of our lives. Right? God looks at David and he says, you want to build a localized place for a localized people to worship me. And he says, that's not what I want. I don't want to build a localized place for a localized people to worship me. I want to use a localized people to change the world. That's, that's what we talk about when, when we say, do your deal, find your Marietta. That's what we're talking about, is that idea, you look on that map out there, and you're looking around, and what we want to know, God has planted you somewhere. God has sent you somewhere in this world to do the things, the good works, that he made for you to do. And, and, and here's the bigger picture of that. The world is God's Marietta, right? And using obedient humans to show God to the world is God's deal. That's God's deal. It's, it's what he did before there was sin. Before there was sin in the world, God looked at Adam and Eve and he said, here's what I want to do. I want you to represent me to creation. I want you to take care of things as representatives of me, which is crazy because God could have taken care of all of it. Correct? Yeah. But instead, God said, this is what I do. I put my image in people and I send it to the world. It was how he did it. Romans 8, 19 says that the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That the creation is waiting for the children of God to grab hold of the Torah of man, of the law of humanity. The creation sits and it says, we're, we're waiting. There's supposed to be someone. There's supposed to be some ones that bear God's image so that the chaos can be made right. The God who spoke into chaos and brought order is the God whose image is in me to speak into chaos and to bring order. There's an Old Testament scholar, Walter Kaiser, who calls this passage, that particular verse, actually, that Torah of man. He calls it the charter for humanity. He says it's the plan and prescription for God's kingdom, whereby the whole world shall be blessed. And it doesn't start with David. There, there, there's a covenant. We, we talked about Adam and Eve, but there's a covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And in it, God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great and you'll be a blessing and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. He says, Abraham, this is what we're doing. I'm going to pour in, pour in, pour in so that the nations will be blessed by seeing what an obedient person, someone who's obedient to me, looks like, receives and what happens in their life. 
There's a reason that David grabs hold of this Abrahamic language to talk to God. A lot of scholars believe that what David is doing is actively connecting himself back to the Abrahamic covenant. And we call uh, what happens when God says, we read it last week, when God says, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'm going to use your foundations. I'm going to use who you are to proclaim my kingdom into the world. And it's not just in the Old Testament. It continues on to the New Testament. Most of you know that the word testament means covenant. It's a new covenant. But the new covenant is reflective in so many ways. The the mission of the new covenant is reflective of the mission of the old covenant. Jesus tries to call Israel back to it when he says, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're a city on a hill. And then he calls those who follow him back to it in the Great Commission. When he says, go therefore to all the nations and baptize them and, and teach them what I commanded you. So that people will know. People will have proclaimed to them the truth of what God does and who God is. I, I think it's summed up uh, great in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And they're, they're right there. It says this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He goes on, he says, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though... God, we're making his appeal through us. We're the plan. We're the plan. Christ reconciled us so that we could do the work of Christ, which is reconciling. Right? God restored his image through the blood of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we could live out that image, looking into chaos and speaking order, looking into darkness and speaking light. The world is a messed up place, in case you haven't noticed. You don't have to look far, do you? You don't have to look back three or four days to know that the world is messed up. And many of us can feel more and more of the chaos every day, can't we? And and, and here's the problem. If the world is in chaos and God's mission is that we would be the image of God speaking order into the chaos and we don't speak, that's a problem. It's a real problem. See, first, as Second Corinthians says, first, God saves us from the chaos, right? The chaos within me, the darkness within me. When I meet Jesus, his blood forgives me and his Holy Spirit fills, fills me and it's restored. And, and that's awesome. And we talked last week about God's making a place for us and we're making a place where we can be with God and we can experience that restoration. But then God commissions us to be change agents. And I love the first part. I love the first part. I love when I feel chaotic and God ministers to the chaos within me. I love when I'm in darkness and God ministers to the darkness within me. My problem is that too often I abdicate the second part. I abdicate the commission. The word abdicate is not a word I use a lot, but it's a word that keeps coming back to me with this. If you don't know what abdicate means, specifically what it literally means is to give up the throne. The, the most famous, probably, ab- abdicator um, was Prince Edward. Prince Edward in the 1930s, I think in 1936, 
uh, he, was, he, was put, he became king in January of 1936. And by December of 1936, he abdicated the throne. Uh, you've seen it. If you've seen the King's Speech or you watched the show The Crown, you've, you've seen some of this. He abdicated the throne. And, and Edward ultimately gave up the throne because of personal agendas. He ultimately gave up the throne because there were things that, and, and in some way, shape, or form, he picked his things. And I think that, that most often, that's the temptation. That, that would have been the temptation for me if I was David. I would have said, no, I want to build a house. I want to build a house. God said I couldn't build a house, and I would pound sand. I would be mad. I'd be frustrated, try to figure out how I asked wrong, what I did wrong, what sin in my life was keeping me from being able to build a house for God. And I wouldn't be able to get off of my own agenda. And, and, and Christians, I'm speaking to Christians. If you're not a Christian and you're just visiting, you can just hear me pick on us for a little bit. And you can be like, yeah, you guys are terrible. Christians, I don't think we're terrible. I just think we're like everybody else. We're hypocrites and we're broken, right? Uh, but, but Christians, I think we're in serious danger. Christians in this room, in this culture, in this society, I think we're in serious danger of abdicating our throne because of personal agendas. And I see two ways. I see two ways that this plays out that I see almost every day. And there's more ways than this, but I think these are, these are most often how it plays out. The first way that we abdicate uh, our, our Torah of humanity is that we embrace the world's version of a side. We embrace the world's version of a side. So if there's a problem, the way the world divides, and it's actually evolutionary, uh, the way the world divides is that we pick sides. And we say, if you're like me, you're right, we should win. And we, we decide that the real problem, the real chaos in the world is them, whoever them is. And we divide all by all kinds of things, right? We divide politically, we divide racially, we divide men and women. And we say the real problem is them. They're the problem. And, and, and there's a problem with that. Because what David says and what's true is that, Israel, God's people, are a unique nation. They're a unique people. They're not an absorbed people. That's why they have all these weird, funky dietary laws in the Old Testament, if you're wondering, is that, is that they were supposed to be a unique people. They were supposed to be different. And when we just get absorbed into different sides of the argument, we don't do what we were made to do. We're redeemed from things. We are redeemed from Egypt. We are redeemed to be unique. What Jesus said happens when we forget our uniqueness is that we lose our saltiness. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're supposed to bring unique flavor, right? Unique ability to a situation. And when we lose our saltiness, this is what Jesus said. He said, you're good for nothing except to be thrown out and to be trampled. And I would say, Christians, that's what's happening to the name Christian today in our culture, is that we're either thrown out. People say, you're, you're just, you're just, you're nothing. You're void. It doesn't matter. Or we're trampled, which is to say, you're part of the problem. You're the problem. Because you're aligning yourselves with whatever these, these worldly points of view are, and you're wrecking everything. It's what's happening to us. Uh, this is so I'm not sure if social media is I, I think it maybe is neutral, 
But this is a place where I see this play out all the time, is that like, on so, for whatever reason on social media, Christians feel like they have to adopt the guerrilla tactic warfare of the culture. And they say, well, how else am I going to do this? And, and, and we become nothing. We're thrown out or we're trampled down. That's a problem. It's a problem. If the world needs God's solutions and we're getting absorbed into cultural arguments, it's a problem. It's a problem. Second way that we abdicate is that we pull back and hide. So, so we don't want to be engaged and we don't want to be embroiled and we don't want to come down on the wrong side and we pull back and hide. And, and sometimes this still plays out actually um, when, when we lived in South Georgia, there was a, a Christian school down there that if you worked at it, you had to sign a contract, you couldn't go to the movie theaters. And the reason you couldn't go to the movie theaters, the movie theater showed rated R movies and they didn't want students to think that you might be going to see a rated R movie. And so sometimes that happens. Yeah, it's, yeah. But Sometimes that happens. It doesn't happen as much um, for us as it used to, probably. We don't actually pull away and insulate ourselves completely. We can for sure do that. But a lot of times we don't do that. What we do is we pull back and we hide verbally. We pull back and we hide culturally. And that's a problem, too. And, And it comes from a good place. I understand the idea. Most of us would say, my life is my testimony. My life. I'm going to live my life in such a way that it's my testimony. But there's, there's a couple of problems with that. The first is this. Uh, most of us are being uh, inconsistent or dishonest because we think our words matter a lot when it comes to what's happening with our toddler. But somehow when it comes to Christ, we're super uncomfortable and we need to let our lives stand out for us. So, so I think there's some dishonesty there. But the other reason it's a problem is this. If people only look at my life, how are they going to know that the name of Jesus is the one they really need to call on? They're going to think it's the name of David that they need to call on. And, and it's going to bring fame to David. What Jesus said about this in, in Matthew 5 was he said, he said, you're a city on a hill. You're a light of the world. And you don't hide a city on a hill. And you don't cover your light with a bowl. And he said, the reason you don't do that is because when you do that, people aren't able to see the goodness and connect it to praising God. And that's what they need. That's what they need. The way I live my life is not ultimately the hope of the world. It's the God that I serve who is ultimately the hope of the world. Don't give up to a soundbite society your charter of humanity. Don't decide that because society and culture are so bad at communicating that we just shouldn't. God's got bigger plans for us than that, church. So I like big ideas, and I would like to leave this here is what I would like to do. But it's not very helpful, probably left here. And so where I often struggle is to figure out, how do I give legs to this? How, how, how do we actually do this? So I'm going to do the best I can. You're going to have to land the plane some yourself. Is that okay? So, thanks. So, how do we embrace God's bigger plan? I think the first thing we have to do is we have to realize that everything is smaller than God's big plan. Everything is smaller than the Torah of humanity, than the charter of humanity. Everything is smaller. And we need to acknowledge that all our dreams are smaller. No matter smaller. 
And none of them are worth our life. And none of them are worth the fullness of our attention. And none of them are worth our worship. None of them are worth staying on. What God's going to do is as we embrace God's charter for humanity, those other things are going to build on top of that in ways that make them matter in eternity. And if we try to do it the other way, if I try to hold tight to my personal plan or my personal agenda or the thing in society that frustrates me the most or the people in society that I think are wrong or racist or whatever, when I try to focus on that and lean into that, it's a rope of sand. It's nothing can be built on that, Jesus says. But if I build my passion about those things on God's Torah of humanity, God's law for us, which is I want to do bigger, greater, wider. I want the kingdom to to be known to the whole world. If I build my passion for those things on God's biggest plan, then they, they got a chance at least. They got a shot at mattering in eternity. Second thing is this. I think we have to recognize that what look like small movements can have major impacts. Um, I, I heard a guy speaking recently and he said uh, that we're in a radically unstable time and, and probably and in radically unstable times, small movements have huge impacts for the future. And that can be good or that can be bad. And there's a couple of things that our society has decided is small. One is worship. I'll just sing songs. How many of us don't raise your hand ditch during worship? Because they're just songs. But what's the first thing David does? He worships God. He recognizes, I'm too small. I'm too small. I'm too small to hold on to this. David David stumbles over his words. That's probably why he repeats himself. He acknowledges and worships God. And the second thing that society has decided is small for some reason. I don't know why is prayer. Like we've just decided that like prayer is not connected to action or action is better than prayer. I'm not totally sure what's going on. But as believers, we need to recognize that that prayer is absolutely the beginning of action. And that action without prayer is that rope of sand. It's going to do nothing to speak order into the chaos. We need to tap in to the power of the God who does those things if we're going to do those things. Last thing um, is, this may be just for me. I don't know. We've got to stop worrying so much about being wrong or being wronged. We, we just have to stop. We have to, we have to get, so, get so caught up in, am I wrong? Am I right? We, we need to know. We need to let God show us where our hearts or where our actions are wrong. And then we just need to move forward into God's right. We don't need to focus all on self-correction or how do I prove myself to this person or or any of those things. See, one of the things that I think David knew that I don't get when it comes to this is that when I see wrong in my life, it feels bad and it feels chaotic. And I think I have to go after it to fix it. But, But David realized, like he served the God, that all God does is speak order into chaos. And that the more I let God just speak into my wrong, the more I walk forward into God in the midst of my wrong, he's going to speak order into chaos. And the more I do that, he's going to fill me with the power that speaks order into chaos so that I can concentrate and say there's chaos in the world. God is speaking order into my chaos so that it would go from me into the world that I might speak order into the world's chaos, that I might speak light into the world's darkness. And when I focus so much on being wrong or being wronged, that that becomes my goal is to solve that little problem. I just, I abdicate the great plan of God 
for my life. And I just got to figure out how to move forward quicker like David. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Like I said, some of the plane, you have to land yourself. Um, so I'm going to invite Bo back up. Not all heroes are short, Bo. Um, so we're going to play two songs. Uh, the first one is a reflection song for you, just for you to listen to the Lord. What is God speaking to you today? Might be through this passage, might be through something completely different. But what is God speaking to you today? Uh, some folks like handholds, and so I have a few handholds to give you in relation to the talk that as I prayed this week, I felt like uh, the Lord was bringing to mind. So I'm going to, those are up on the screen. And the question for me was, where have you let being wrong slow you down from your greatest calling? And I would include in that, where have you let being wrong or being wronged slow you down? And the ways that plays out a lot of times first is that when we're wrong, we often feel a ton of personal shame. I was wrong. And it just slows us down and it weighs us down. It keeps us from pursuing God's vision. And when we're wronged, sometimes it's devastating. Sometimes it's just devastating. I I was talking earlier. I I know folks that have been wrong or wronged in their marriages. And and they they didn't let God bring healing into it. It became so devastating that the marriage was irreconcilable. And then I know people who have marriages that ended in divorce that are still carrying the wrongness or the wrongedness. And it's devastating. And it's keeping them. There are other things that play like that. It could be a job. It could be a situation with one of your children, one of your parents. But, but if that's... Uh, the second is uh, some people, um, some who are Christian, some who are not, you just get hurt by... Or, or disgusted with Christians sometimes. And I get it. Like, like I said earlier, broken hypocrites. I, I totally get that Christians do things hurtful and Christians do things that even other Christians and non-believers are like, that's, that's disgusting. But, but here's the thing that, that I want you to know today. God didn't call you into liking other Christians and he didn't call you into basing your life on whether or not you've been hurt by or disgusted by Christians. God called you into the greatest calling, greater than any that you could ever imagine. And you're letting that be blocked by people. And and God wants to change that for you. God wants to invite you in to to the greatest thing, greater than whatever you could imagine. And then the last is this. It's just, we're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid of being wrong. And today I think God wants to say to us, like, you don't need to be afraid. I will, I will, what the song said, I'll climb up whatever mountain, I'll bust through any lie, I'll do whatever. I'm, I'm with you. Even when you're wrong, I'm with you. And when you're wrong, I'm with you to replace your wrong with better right, not to give you restrictions because you were wrong. So stop being afraid. So in a few minutes, if, if one of those lands with you, when uh, you can come up for prayer for that. You can also come up for prayer for healing. We, also, we always pray for people uh, for healing when we do communion and anything else. So we're going to listen to this one song, and then after this song, if the prayer teams will come forward, uh, and we'll release you to receive prayer.